Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. According to a recent census, homicides made up less than 1% of violent crimes in Canada. Despite this statistic, there are currently 3,400 unsolved murders in Canada. Each year, one in four murders remains unsolved. While some of these crimes might have faded from the media's attention, these unsolved murders and missing persons cases may not have received the coverage as some of the other high-profile cases, which is why I'm bringing them to you this week on Mysteriously Listed. Number 9. Christine Jessup On October 3, 1984, nine-year-old Christine Jessup was dropped off by the school bus at 3.50pm. Her parents were not home. Her father was working and her mother was out doing errands. Christine brought in the mail, placed that with her backpack on the kitchen counter. She would then walk to the store to buy some bubble gum at the local convenience store. This would be the last time anyone saw her alive. It wouldn't be long until investigators identified a suspect. The man who lived next door to the Jessops, 23-year-old Guy Paul Morin, Neighbours told police that he was strange. He never had a girlfriend. He still lived at home with his parents and didn't have any friends or a social life to speak of. Almost three months later, on December 31st, Christine's body was found in a field near Sutherland. Christine's small body was found sexually assaulted and stabbed multiple times. The killer had posed her body with her legs spread apart. She was found wearing only a sweater with the remainder of her clothes piled around her feet. Police would arrest Morin in April of 1985, but he had an alibi for the time of Christine's murder. His time card showed that he had punched out of work at 3.22pm. Following that, he was seen at several locations – a lottery ticket centre, a grocery store, a gas station, and he arrived back home at 5.30. His parents and brother-in-law confirmed that he stayed there for the rest of the evening. Because of this, Morin was acquitted at his trial in 1986. The Crown did appeal this verdict. They blamed errors for the acquittal. Despite it being double jeopardy, a second trial did begin in 1992. And despite there being no new evidence, Morin was found guilty and sentenced to life imprisonment. Unlike other child sex offenders, though, he was not segregated apart from the general prison population. 
As a result, he was regularly raped and beaten. By 1995, with the advancements of DNA practices, Morin's legal team tested his DNA against evidence from the crime scene. The results supported his alibi, that it definitely wasn't Morin who murdered Christine Jessup, that there was an innocent man in prison. On January 23, 1995, Morin was formally acquitted of all charges and released from prison. An inquiry revealed that Christine's parents had lied about the time they arrived home to help build a case against Morin. The investigators were even aware they had lied. But not only that, but the prosecution withheld evidence from the defence and lab technicians used contaminated samples. For his wrongful conviction, Morin received $1.5 million in compensation. Christine Jessup's murder remains unsolved, and police have openly said they are no longer actively investigating unless new and compelling evidence comes to light. Number 8. Sam Doe Approximately 42 miles southeast of Edmonton, Alberta, is the home of Toefield, which sits at the entrance of the large Beaver Hill Lake. Just outside of town, Charlie and Mavis McLeod had purchased a property where an old abandoned house sat. The plans were to demolish one farmhouse and build another. On Wednesday, April 1st, 1977, the McLeods were planning on installing a new septic tank, but they were missing a part. They decided to search the existing septic tank on their property for the pump they needed. That's when they made the grisly discovery. Mavis McLeod saw a grey sock and a brown shoe. Someone or someones had used the 1.8 metre tank as a dumping site for the body. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police, or the RCMP, were immediately contacted. Officers with the RCMP arrived at the scene a short time later. They discovered the body wrapped in a yellow bedsheet tied with nylon. The body had been dropped headfirst into the septic tank, with his killer or killers trying to accelerate the decomposition process by using quicklime. The medical examiner had determined that the body had been in the septic tank for a period of several months to a year before it was discovered by the McLeods. Due to the quicklime, the time that had passed, it took months to even determine the gender of the unidentified person. It turned out that this was a body of a man aged anywhere from 26 to 40 years old. Since the man didn't have any identification on him, and since the RCMP were unable to identify him, he was given the name and due to the location where he was found, he was given the moniker, Septic Tank Sam. What investigators do know about Sam is that he died a horrible and brutal death, 
one that is still considered one of the worst in Alberta's history. Investigators believe that he was tied down onto a bed while being tortured and lying on top of a yellow bedsheet that would later be used to dispose of his body. They revealed that Sam had burn marks on the sleeves of his shirt, the legs of his jeans, and on one sock where the killer or killers had burnt the soles of his feet. They also noted that the crutch area of his jeans looked like it had been cut out with shears before he was sexually mutilated. He was then shot twice in the head and chest. Although it is possible there were more undetectable surface wounds. When he died, Sam was wearing a blue Levi shirt with snap buttons, a white t shirt, blue jeans, grey wool socks, and a brown imitation wallaby shoes. Sam was Native American or Caucasian with medium build and stood anywhere from 5 foot 5 to 5 foot 10. And he weighed anywhere from 145 to 180 pounds. And he was anywhere from 26 to 40 years old. He had brown to black eyes and was right-handed. Based on the tests of his bones, it is thought that he most likely suffered from an illness from the age of five. Investigators believed he may have worked in some sort of labour-like work, such as being a farmhand or a construction worker. He was likely not from the Alberta area. Due to the brutality of the crime, the RCMP believed that the killer or killers may have known Sam. As Sam was found in the septic tank on a remote property outside the town's limits, it has also been surmised that the killer or killers were most likely familiar with the area around Toefield. It is common knowledge of Toefield residents that no one was living at the farmhouse, but those not from the area wouldn't know this or even that the farmhouse existed. Now, this isn't to say that the killer or killers originated from the town. However, I'd say it was more likely than not that whoever tortured and killed our John Doe had sufficient local knowledge to understand that concealing Sam's remains within the tank would mean that he would not be discovered for a long time. There has been a lot of time and resources dedicated to identifying Sam. His body has been exhumed twice and compared to more than 250 missing persons and over $1 million has been spent in the investigation into who he is and who has murdered him. Sam's teeth had been in good condition and had been taken care of. He had all his teeth and some fillings and some recent dental work. Investigators sent out Sam's dental records to more than 800 dentists, but none could be matched to any patient on their files. Despite their best intentions, the RCMP have not been able to identify Sam or his killer or killers. It seems only time will tell if we'll know Sam Doe's real name, along with the motive behind his brutal and tragic murder. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Number seven, Maisie Ojik and Shannon Alexander. In 2008, 16-year-old Maisie Ojik lived with her grandmother on a reservation in Quebec, Canada. Her cousin, 17-year-old Shannon Alexander, lived in a small nearby town. The two girls were not only cousins, but they were best friends. Maisie often stayed at Shannon's home, and the two would stay up until late watching movies and gossiping about boys. On September 6, 2008, Maisie and Shannon told their family they were going to a school dance for the evening. They made it to the dance, and friends would later report seeing them there. Their friends later reporting that the girls were happy, and nothing seemed out of the ordinary. Maisie and Shannon left the dance together, and were never seen again. When Shannon's father returned home on Labor Day, he found the girls had left behind their purses, wallets, identification and backpacks. Shannon even left her medication behind. Maisie's family reported her missing to the reservation police on September 9th, with Shannon's family reporting her missing to the Quebec police the following day, September 10th. Maisie's mother believes the investigation into her daughter's disappearance was mishandled from the start. The girls were initially labelled as runaways when there was no history of them running away previously, and neither of the girls ever being in trouble with the law or missing school. According to the families, the police never searched the girls' home and belongings for evidence of where the girls were, and all they were provided with was a case number. Investigators also refused the help of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. It wouldn't be until six weeks after the girls were last seen before the reservation police arranged a press conference. It was left to the girls' family and friends to organise searches during this time, before the public were notified that the girls were missing. The families believe that important evidence may have been lost or destroyed during this time. In 2009, the Quebec police took over Maisie's case, and they consider both cases linked. In June of 2017, investigators received some new information from an anonymous tip that led to a new search for the girls at the Pitabig Creek on the reservation. Investigators used divers and sonar equipment to search the bed of the creek, and they excavated an area using ground-penetrating machinery. However, nothing was found. Current investigation states that as many as 20 people are considered persons of interest 
in the disappearance of Maisie Ojik and Shannon Alexander. Number 6. Babes in the Woods Murders On January 14, 1953, a Stanley Park employee, Albert Tong, was walking past Beaver Lake when he walked over some leaves that he thought were making a strange sound. Investigating, he found that under the leaves buried in the dirt was a scattering of bones. Albert immediately contacted the police with investigators arriving at the crime scene the following day. Investigators found a decomposing woman's fur covering the skeletons of two small children. Buried next to the bodies were scraps of children's clothing. Two zipper jackets, two aviator caps and one belt. Further searching would discover a metal lunchbox, a size seven and a half woman's shoe, and more sinisterly, a layman's hatchet. This would prove to be the murder weapon, with an autopsy later discovering one of the bodies bearing a wound from the hatchet blade and the other body showing injuries from that hatchet handle. Crucial mistakes in the early stages of processing the crime scene affected the investigation. A doctor and not a pathologist was called to the scene. The doctor determined that the two bodies belonged to a boy and a girl with their ages between 6 and 10, and that they were siblings. This remained the belief for 40 years. This case was front-page news at the time of the children's discovery. Plaster-cast reconstructions were made based on measurements of the skulls, and flyers were distributed all over Canada, and attempts were made to match these children with missing children all throughout North America. Despite the efforts made by investigators, no match was ever made. In 1996, with the advancements of forensic technology and DNA processing, the remains were again processed looking for new clues and this would change the investigation forever. The DNA would show that the two victims were in fact two boys, brothers, and while they had the same mother, they had different fathers. This meant the investigators needed to go back to the start looking at the case with fresh eyes to see if they could be identified. In the case file, another case was considered, but disregarded at the time because it was thought the victims were male and female. In 1953, the police received a tip from a logger. He claimed to have picked up a woman and her two sons hitchhiking, and he drove them to Stanley Park. This report even made mention of the boys wearing aviator caps. The investigators were able to uncover the identity of the woman who was a sex worker from Mission, which was only an hour from Vancouver and where the boys' remains would be found. No reports could be found if she ever had children, and no reports could be found of two brothers from Mission missing from school the following September. However, it should be noted that the younger of the two may not have even been attending school at the time of his death.
Another promising tip from the initial investigation. A sailor and his fiancée were walking along the seawall in May of 1944 when a woman came crashing through the bushes in front of them. She was wearing no coat, only one shoe, and she was crying out hysterically. They reported that she took off running when she saw the couple watching her. Unfortunately, the investigators looking into the case in the 1990s couldn't find the couple again to question them further. It was important to the investigators that these boys received a proper burial. After DNA testing was completed and saving a few pieces of bone for possible future use, the boys were cremated and their ashes spread in the ocean off Kitt Beach. Reconstructions of the boys' skulls and plaster castings of their faces remain on display at the Vancouver Police Museum in remembrance to this day, in the hope that the two brothers might one day find their name. Number 5. Barbara Jean McLean and Melissa Rahorik in October 1976, 19-year-old Barbara Jean McLean had moved to Calgary from Nova Scotia to live with her boyfriend. She started working at the state bank and was enjoying the change to her social life, and she would frequent the local bars with her boyfriend and her new friends. On February 25th, 1977, Barbara Jean McLean was at Highlander Bar for a night out with her friends and boyfriend. As the evening progressed, Barbara Jean got into a heated argument with her boyfriend, which led them to both being kicked out of the bar. Barbara Jean followed him to the parking lot, where the couple continued to argue. Around 2.30am, eyewitnesses would later report seeing her boyfriend speed off in his 1970 dark green Volvo, leaving Barbara Jean alone in the bar's parking lot. Her friends would later tell police that she had plans to hitchhike to a party, a party that she never made it to. The following day, February 26th, a man walking his dog found her fully clothed body next to a gravel road just north of Calgary. An autopsy would determine her death was due to strangulation. Police believe she was killed at another location and then moved to where she would be later found. Police theorised that the person who picked up hitchhiking Barbara Jean was responsible for her death. On further investigation, police believed her murder was connected to another unsolved case, that of Melissa Ann Rahorik. During the spring of 1976, 20-year-old Melissa Ann Rahorik had moved to Calgary from Windsor looking for a fresh start. She had started work as a chambermaid at a local hotel and was living at the YMCA until she could save for her own apartment. On September 15, 1976, she left the YMCA alone, looking to hitchhike west out of the city, 
to explore during her two days off work. At some point during this trip, Melissa caught a transit bus and travelled west. But after she got off the bus near McMahon Stadium in Calgary, she was never seen alive again. The following day, September 16th, Melissa's fully clothed body was found in a ditch along a rural road. Melissa's purse, money, keys and identification were found nearby, all of which indicated to investigators that robbery was not a motive. Eyewitnesses would later report a grey-coloured half-tonne truck in the area the night before that was unknown to locals. A person of interest was sex offender Gary McCosta, who was 34 years old at the time of the murders. McCosta suicided by hanging in 1994 in his Edmonton home only hours before he was meant to be questioned by police for the murder of 14-year-old Tina McPhee, who disappeared a month earlier while walking to school. McCosta had just been released from prison after serving his full 11-year sentence for a 1982 rape and the subsequent 1988 sexual assault he committed while on parole. McCosta would also be reportedly the prime suspect in the 1976 murder of another Edmonton teenager, 17-year-old Marie Judy Gaudreau, who disappeared on the way home to her family's farm. Her body was found two days later in similar circumstances to Melissa and Barbara Jean. And like Melissa and Barbara Jean... Marie's murder remains unsolved to this day. Number 4. Carrie Ann Brown On October 16, 1986, 15-year-old Carrie Ann Brown attended a house party with a group of friends in Thompson, Manitoba. She left the party with a friend, but as they went to leave, this friend went back to get something she had forgotten, leaving Carrie alone outside to wait. When the friend came back outside, Carrie was gone. Several witnesses would later report seeing Carrie get into a van between 10.30 and 11pm. Others would report that she got into a taxi and yet others again would report that she walked off somewhere from the party, by foot. Two days after the party, two women from a riding stable discovered Carrie's naked body in a wooded area close to a hydro line, between the horse stable and a golf course. Carrie had been sexually assaulted and severely beaten. She had been bludgeoned repeatedly about the face and head, causing massive injuries. A large, blood-stained stick was found at the crime scene. DNA gathered showed samples from at least two different men, leading police to believe more than one person was involved in Carey's murder. Shortly after Carey's murder, a 22-year-old Thompson man was charged with first-degree murder in connection with Carey Ann Brown. 
However, the case itself was largely circumstantial. He was released four months later after being discharged with a trial after a preliminary hearing. It was ruled there wasn't admissible evidence upon which a reasonable jury could return a guilty verdict. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police would publicly state in a press conference that in 1996, a vehicle got stuck in the mud where Kerry was found, with a blue and red air mattress along with a black floor rubber mat that was used to try and gain traction to free the vehicle. Two eyewitnesses reported at the time that they had spotted a white van as well as an older model mid-1960s green sedan at the scene, just hours after Carey left the party. In 2012, the RCMP began conducting a full review into Carey Ann Brown's murder investigation. They called upon two retired homicide detectives to front the new cold case squad. All the forensic evidence was reviewed and DNA was resubmitted. Persons of interest were polygraphed and this continues to this day, more than 30 years later. More than 100 DNA samples have been taken, mostly voluntary, and all evidence was digitalised to assist with the effectiveness of the investigation. Carrie Ann Brown's murder is considered the largest unsolved homicide investigation that the RCMP are currently investigating in Manitoba. And investigators still hope that one day her killer or killers will be brought to justice. Number 3. Baby Parker On July 28, 2005, Margaret Littlewood was walking her dog in a wooded area off of Parkside Drive in Brantford, Ontario, when she made a horrific discovery. What she first thought was a newborn animal wrapped in a towel was actually the naked body of a newborn baby boy. She ran home and immediately notified the authorities. The next day, the police were called by a man who discovered a bloody item in his backyard. It would later be identified as the baby's placenta. An autopsy was performed, but the cause of death has never been released publicly but it was determined that the baby was born alive and had suffered trauma to his ribs and his skull. A week after the body was found, the police received a three-page letter from someone who described themselves as a young girl. She said that she got pregnant after having sex with one of the guys in her neighbourhood, but she didn't know for sure who the father of the baby was. She said that she kept the pregnancy a secret, and on the night the baby was born, she was at a party when the contraction started. She went into labour, and a friend helped her deliver the baby in a park near the party. The young girl didn't know the sex of the baby, but her friend told her the baby had died. 
Her friend then went and placed the baby in some bushes and got rid of the placenta, but she wasn't sure exactly what her friend did with it. The two then went back to the party to wait for a ride home. The letter closes with the young girl begging the police not to do any DNA testing because she didn't want anyone to know, especially the baby's father. She said that she needed a week to build up the courage and then she would turn herself in, but she never has. The letter contained fingerprints, however they weren't a match to anyone on any database. Now, obviously, the police took DNA samples from the baby. But after testing a 100 people, they have found neither parent. Today, the case is cold, but the police hope that the conscience of the mother of baby Parker, or the friend who helped deliver the baby, will come forward and confess. Number 2. Nicole Morin In the summer of 1985, Nicole Morin was eight years old and she was living with her parents in a penthouse in an apartment building in the Toronto, Ontario neighbourhood of Etobicoke. On the morning of July 30th, Nicole put on her favourite bathing suit and sandals and said goodbye to her mother, Jeanette. She was going downstairs to the lobby to meet a friend from school to go swimming in the building's outdoor pool. The friend waited for Nicole in the lobby for 15 minutes, but Nicole never showed. So she called Nicole at the apartment on the intercom. Jeanette said that Nicole had already left for the pool. The friend waited a few more minutes and then just figured that Nicole couldn't come swimming for some reason and decided to go to the pool by herself. Hours later, when Nicole didn't return home, Jeanette knew something was wrong. The building was searched, but Nicole was nowhere to be seen. The police were called, which led to one of the biggest and most extensive searches in Canadian history. But sadly, not a single trace of Nicole has ever been found. It was clear to the investigators that Nicole had been abducted, but by who? Residents and staff at the apartment building were questioned, but no one reported seeing Nicole after she walked out of the apartment door. So it's not clear if she was abducted on her floor or while in the elevator. All that is known is that she did not make it to the lobby where her friend was waiting. The abductor could have been someone who was visiting the apartment building, like a guest or a maintenance person, and she was taken out of the building immediately after walking out her door. But then again, no one saw anything suspicious, like someone carrying a young girl out of the building. Another possibility is that she was abducted by someone who lived in the building, maybe someone who lived on the same floor as the Morins. Both of these theories are just as plausible, but the police have no evidence to support either one. A woman was seen on the same floor as the Morins lived about 45 minutes before Nicole disappeared. 
she was on the opposite end of the hall from the penthouse and she was holding a notepad. She was described as a white woman, about 35 years old, about 5 foot 5 to 5 foot 7, and she was slender with a fair complexion. She was wearing a white skirt that had a black design and a white or cream blouse. The police do not believe she was involved in the abduction of Nicole, but it is possible she may have witnessed something. A month after Nicole disappeared, Jeanette said that she felt in her heart that her daughter had been killed. Nicole's father, Art, said that he hopes that Nicole is still alive. He said in an interview that he still has hope as Nicole was not the only child Jeanette had go missing. Jeanette had a son from a previous marriage and his father had abducted him. Then, after being missing for 15 years, her son surprised her by knocking on her front door. Sadly, Jeanette would never find out the fate of her daughter. She died of a heart attack in 2007. In 2004, 29 years after Nicole went missing, the police announced that they were reopening the case. Not long afterwards, a tip came in and the police were told to search a rural property in Springwater, Ontario, which is about an hour north of Toronto. This would be the second time police would receive a tip to search the area. The police had originally searched the same area in 1985 because an anonymous phone caller had told them they would find Nicole there. Both times the area was searched, but the police did not turn up any evidence that Nicole's remains were there. Art and the investigators involved in the case are hoping that one day Nicole Morin will be found. Number 1. Julia Johnson On April 25, 1928, five-year-old Julia Johnson mysteriously disappeared outside her home in Winnipeg. She disappeared in the space of less than five minutes. It wasn't believed that she wandered away on her own, as she never ventured far from her mother's sight. On this day, she was seen playing with a tennis ball while waiting for a friend to come over after school. The police immediately began a search of the neighbourhood, interviewing all of the Johnson's neighbours. One neighbour would report seeing Julia and some other children at an abandoned building which backed onto the Johnson family home around 2pm. This neighbour knew Julia well and was adamant it was definitely her. Another neighbour would confirm that she and her son spoke to Julia an hour later across the road from her home. And at 3.50, yet another neighbour of the Johnsons said that she saw Julia bouncing her tennis ball on her own, still waiting for her friend. Her mother reported her missing five minutes later. The family, despite struggling financially, offered a $50 reward for the return of their daughter. This would soon increase to $2,000 through donations from the community. 
the officers had little to work with. If she had been abducted, why hadn't anyone in the busy neighbourhood seen or heard anything unusual? It was theorised by investigators that she was taken by someone she knew. Several witnesses would claim to have seen an older man talking to the children on the day Julia went missing. The man was described as being between 45 and 65 years old, wearing dark clothing. He had an unshaven appearance and was thought to have been Eastern European. These witnesses were taken to the police station to look at a photo lineup. All the suspects from this were interviewed and eventually eliminated as suspects. The interest in Julia's disappearance spread throughout Canada and into the United States. Psychics reported having visions of Julia being in a pink house and alive, trapped in the sewer that she was being held to be made a sacrifice or to be possibly used for sex trafficking when she was old enough. The police would pursue every lead and the local newspapers kept the story on the front page, but little Julia could not be found. One tip of interest involved a neighbour of the Johnsons who had a lengthy criminal record. He refused to talk to the police when they questioned the neighbourhood, and since police had no evidence he was involved, they didn't pursue it further at the time. In the summer of 1929, he faked his own death and was later arrested in Seattle, Washington. He was deported back to Canada and questioned again about Julia Johnson. He again refused to discuss her disappearance. According to my research, this would be the last contact police would have with him. In 1937, a machinist named Wilfred Adams was working on an industrial site near the Johnson home. Wilfred was preparing the building for tenants and had started dismantling a large boiler in the basement. At around 2pm on March 22, 1937, Almost nine years since Julia was last seen, Wilfred opened the boiler and found Julia's remains preserved in the boiler ash. The tennis ball she was last seen playing with was with her remains. The building was immediately considered a crime scene and the investigators who originally searched the building in 1928 were questioned. Police tried to find out who had access to the building on the day in question. The building manager claimed to have had left a key at the nearby blacksmith's shop so that prospective tenants and meter readers could enter the building. The meter reader backed up this story, but both the blacksmiths denied this was the case. An autopsy could find no obvious cause of death. It was impossible to determine whether this was a tragic accident or whether foul play was involved. The investigation came to a standstill and despite an inquest, the death of Julia Johnson is still considered unsolved. (laughs) 
Do you have something you would like to see mysteriously listed? Do you have a particular theme that interests you? Message us on Facebook at Mysteriously Listed and on Twitter at Mysterious List. If you like what you've heard today, we would love for you to share this episode on your social media of choice. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, we would appreciate it if you could leave a positive review and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Research, additional writing and hosting is by me, Ali. Music is by Mayu. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.